heads up because you are in the Hoodwood. I'm the Black Bandit, KJ Green, welcoming you to another edition of Sports for the Hoodwood for September 15th, 2022. Coming up this week, a bonkers week in college and pro football. We'll take a look at a few games that really went off the rails. Who is the American League MVP? Shohei Otani or Aaron Judge? Maybe you should decide. We have NFL Week 2 picks. The Wood Hot 5 as usual. Fat dab, head slap, and a final word from the Wood regarding El Hombre. Got a stuff to digest. Got a lot of stuff to cover. A lot of ground to cover. Hey, sports with the Wood with Bunker Seatbelts. Get ready, because here we go. You're tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the internet's foremost location for the most honest, unfiltered commentary and insight on the world of sports. Now, once again, here's Hoodwood's hometown hero, K.J. Green. Green from the Hoodwood, where I'm still representing Color Guard, but the University is also being repped this week. I'm your man, KJ Green, the Black Bandit. And let's straight off, lead off the top with the crazy week that was in both college and pro football. It was considered week two in college football. Why they go week zero, one, and two? I'm not part of the naming convention, so I don't ask questions. Nevertheless, week two of college football was, in a word, bonkers and you thought last week was crazy this week was even nuttier right off the top marshall going into south bend and beating notre dame not a misprint not a fluke the thundering herd took the fight to the irish hey a play on words i like that nevertheless notre dame thought they had a cupcake you know, you pay a team a million so dollars, come in and get slapped around. Now, Marcus Freeman, who I still have a personal, I personally like. I think he's a good coach, former Bearcat defense coordinator. I won't say anything about him being a trader, just leaving UC to go to Notre Dame for the same job. But he got the head coaching gig. He campaigned for it. The players wanted him. But he has had an absolute devil of a time getting his first win. He coached him in the bowl game. They lost. Coached him against Ohio State in his official coaching opener. They lost. No shame going into Columbus and losing. But still, Marshall was supposed to be a beatable opponent. Funny thing, no one told them the Thundering Herd. They took the fight to the Irish. Another play on words. I'm getting good at that. They took the Irish basically unafraid, unapologetic, and beat them. 26-21, and the score was not as close as it would seem because the Irish scored with 14 seconds to go to close what was a 26-15 game to 26-21. They missed a two-point conversion, didn't get the onside kick, and there lie the ruin of the Irish. But that wasn't one. That wasn't the biggest upset of the of the week. No, Appalachian State. Remember them? I pointed them out last week. Said. These mid-major teams are better than advertised. They go to College Station. And Texas A&M played a sloppy game. Turned over the ball way too many times. Couldn't get their running game going. And just looked listless. And when you have nearly 100,000 people at Kyle Field sitting there booing you. 
at games in, you know it's not a pretty sight. Appalachian State beat Texas A&M 17-14. And Texas A&M fell 18 spots in the subsequent AP poll. And then we have Texas nearly beating Alabama. I told you. Y'all wouldn't listen to me. You laughed at me when I said Bama was overrated. Sneered at me when I said that they could be beat. And they nearly did. They didn't lose. They beat Texas by the slimmest of slim margins, 20-19 on a last-second field goal. But if you really think that Alabama's the third-best team in the country, I got prime real estate, oceanfront property in Kansas to sell you. Texas should have won that game. Now, we're not playing should-haves, but you got to give Texas that. And the pollsters gave Texas that because they put them in the polls, even though they were unranked. Put them in the polls after a loss. How many teams you see going to the polls after a loss? And then we have Nebraska. (laughs) Poor, poor Nebraska. Once a national power, once a feared team has fallen on the hardest of hard times, losing to Georgia Southern. Wait, wait. Georgia Southern. Not Georgia Tech. Not Georgia Georgia Southern. And I'm not taking anything away from Georgia Southern because they played an absolutely fantastic game. But when a team gives up 65 points, something's wrong. And Nebraska, growing tired of figuring, seeing if Scott Frost could figure it out, gave him the gate. The once proud Cornhuskers program, begging Scott Frost, come home. You built a great team in Central Florida, an undefeated team. Won the Peach Bowl against Auburn. And Scott Frost went to his alma mater. He was a quarterback there in the late 90s. But he could not recapture the magic. And after four non-winning, non-bowl seasons, Athletic Director Trev Alberts had seen enough and decided a new voice needed to be in the room and gave Scott Frost's walking papers. Now you're going to see the usual suspects being lined up, ballied about for the job. Uh, Matt Campbell from uh, Iowa State. Uh, my alma mater's uh, Luke Fickle from Cincinnati. You're going to see those usual names, but Nebraska's not a glamorous job anymore. And it's harder and harder to get recruits to Nebraska as they don't really have a winning legacy. And it's going to take a while to fix that program. And the aforementioned pair of coaches are established in their programs and see no real reason to abandon for a team that is not that good. Now let's switch gears to the pro. game was just as equally bonkers. Steelers and the Bengals win to overtime. The Bengals looked absolutely atrocious in the first half. Joe Burrow was throwing interceptions like they were going out of style. His first pass of the season was a pick six by Minka Fitzpatrick. The Steelers roared out to a 20-7 lead, uh, but the Bengals battled back. To their credit, they looked better in the second half. Joe Burrow throwing a couple more touchdown passes, getting the Bengals back into the game. They should have taken the lead after a last second with two seconds to play. 
uh, Burrow to chase in the end zone, ties the game at 20. It should have been tied the game with a touchdown, the extra point, but the extra point was missed because it was actually blocked by that man again, Minka Fitzpatrick, because the sequence between the snapper and the holder and the kicker was not consistent. The holder being longtime punter for the Bengals, Kevin Huber, and of course, kicker Evan McPherson. But the long snapper, usually Clark Harris, was not there because of an arm injury and his emergency replacement was not up to the task. This haunted the Bengals in overtime because the Bengals had a shot to win the game with a field goal. But McPherson missed another field goal because the sequence was again off. The timing between the snapper and the holder and the kicker is so critical that even just a little bit off on the sequence messes the whole operation up. It was messed up and it literally cost the Bengals the game. The Steelers had their own uh, kicking problems. Chris Boswell hit a 55-yard field goal off the uh, upright in Paycor Stadium in Cincinnati. And I mean, he hit it hard. I mean, it, it was like a Taco Bell bong. It hit that hard. But he did hit a 53-yarder to win the game for the Steelers. And that was just one of the goofy games this weekend. The Texans and the Colts played to a 20-all tie. The first opening week tie since 1979. The first, Texans, uh, first tie in Texans history. And it, it just... One of those, it just didn't make any sense. Neither team wanted to win that game, and it seemed very, very obvious in the in the extra period that both teams were kind of playing patty cake and footsie to keep from making a big mistake to give the game away, and the game ended up in a draw. Um, what was very good about this bonkers weekend was Patrick Mahomes. He had five touchdown passes in the desert against the Cards. And the Chiefs just absolutely just smoked Arizona in getting their first win. Speaking of getting smoked, the Bills, wow, on Thursday night, you know, the Rams, you know, they had the big ceremony unveiling the banner, you know, giving out, you know, they already given out their rings, the whole nine yards, everybody's all Hollywood. The Bills were like, so what you saying? Bam! And hence it with a 31 to 10 beatdown that in the second half was just a joke. I mean, Matt Stafford looked horrible. Josh Allen, that young man is going to, he already is a superstar, but I'm thinking he's going to be even more so, and he proved it in spades. And Jalen Ramsey did a lot of talking, but he seemed to be looking at the back of Stephon Diggs more often than not. He was repeatedly burned and trashed. The supposedly vaunted Rams secondary looked very bad in opening night. And what was Nathaniel Hackett thinking in the uh, Seahawks-Broncos game? I mean, it made no sense. They had the ball in the fourth quarter down by a point. They had a chance to drive down the field and win the game. They're moving the ball methodically, slowly down the field, burning clock as they go. They had all three timeouts. They had no problem getting first downs. The drive stalled a little bit at midfield, to be sure. But on third and 14, they throw a swing pass. It gets nine yards. So they're facing fourth and five at the Denver 47. I beg your pardon, the uh, Seattle 47. With about a minute, uh, minute change to go. I say, let's say about 70 seconds. The 
Broncos wasted, let the clock run all the way down to 20 seconds before calling a timeout. And then they kicked a 64-yard field goal. Now, Brandon McManus has a big leg and has hit long field goals before. I mean, not just because he's in Denver, but also he's hit long field goals before at altitude, at regular altitude. But Nathaniel Hackett, for reasons that he tried to defend in his post-game press conference, tried to make it seem that that was the plan all along. We thought we, we could do I mean, that was close enough. No, it's not. I mean, even with a kicker with a big leg, you want to get as close to the goalpost as possible if you're not going to score, kick field goal. But you want to make the field goal as easy as possible. They didn't do it. A 64-yarder at sea level, good luck. And to McManus's credit, he almost hit it. It curved just a little bit wide to the left. He had the distance, but you don't want to put that kind of pressure on a kicker kicking that far to win a game on the road. Nathaniel Hackett is the son of, uh, of legendary offensive guru Paul Hackett. He did not honor his bona fides in that game. Let's shift gears, and we will do that here, and we'll talk some baseball. Let's talk some baseball, shall we? Who's your pick for the American League MVP? We're not talking about National League MVP. I think Paul Goldschmidt has that on lock. But you have two very defined camps. You have those who think Shohei Otani of the Anaheim Angels should be the most valuable player as he was last year. And you have others that say Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees should be most valuable player. Take your pick. Most people are debating about which one should be. You have those that think Otani, who has, at the time of this taping, 34 home runs, 88 RBIs, and is also 12-8 and on the mound. He's hitting, he's pitching, and doing both quite well. The drawback is he plays for the Angels, who are light years out of playoff contention. I mean, the Angels have... Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, and I got nothing. I can't even tell you who their manager is. I know that Joe Madden got fired, I think, last year. But going forward, the, the Angels really are not that good of a team. And was it not, was it not for Otani and Trout, they'd be a little, even further out than they are now. On the other hand, you have Aaron Judge. Who, like Otani, was Rookie of the Year the year before Otani was. Uh, he was uh, Rookie of the Year in 2018. Judge was Rookie of the Year in 2017. This year, Judge bet on himself to have a big season. The Yankees offered him extension to his contract. He turned them down. It's a big contract, too. But Judge has been a boss all season. 57 homers, 123 RBI. And, but the, the Bombers been rolling deep all year. They've been pretty. They they roared out in front. Pretty much been in the lead. AL East. They got they the, the margin uh, closed up a little bit last couple of weeks. But they've managed to pull away, and they're now about a half dozen games up. The drawback to Judge being the MVP, he's been protected with a stacked lineup. They have a. I mean, he has good hitters in front of him and behind him, and pitchers have to pitch to him. That's a problem. The thing with, 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 you look at 
both Otani and Judge, both of them are worthy of winning the MVP. My, the favorite here in the Hoodwood is Aaron Judge. I'm not knocking Shohei Otani in any way. He's a great player. And I think in any other year, I think he should be, be the odds-on favorite to win another MVP. But Aaron Judge is having an absolute monster year. And the thing is this. He is threatening a, a record, an AL record, and a Yankees record that stood for 60 years. And Roger Maris is 61. And I don't think Roger Maris has ever gotten the proper dap and credit that he deserved for hitting 61 home runs in that media cauldron in New York where the pressure was so bad, his hair started to fall out. Roger Maris set the record and has been the AL gold standard for the last 60 years. Now, Mark McGuire hit 70 in 1998. Barry Bonds hit 73 in 2001. Those are both of the NL. But Aaron Judge is going after a sacred, a sacred record here. And I think he's going to get it. I think he's going to hit about 62, 63 home runs before it's all said and done. He still has three weeks left on the season. And he has been hitting the ball a ton. Like I said, Otani, being the defending MVP, he deserves consideration. But Judge right now is a beast. And the Yankees are riding his historic season straight to the playoffs. We will now take a timeout and come back with the Week 2 Picks. Sports from the Hollywood rolls on after this. You are tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the Internet's foremost location for opinion, analysis, and insight on the world of sports. Here now is the man banned from sports trivia contests in 38 states and four Canadian provinces, and not to mention Guam. Your host, KJ Green. You are back in the Hoodwood. My name's KJ Green, and let's look at the NFL Week 2 picks. The R&B crooner from the 80s and early 90s, Alexander O'Neill, had a song that was called Love Makes No Sense. He could have been talking about my week's picks, though, but I skated by with a winning week, barely, but the picks went so haywire. We had a tie game, it was the first opening week tie in 43 years, and very nearly a second tie 
in that nutso Steelers Bengals game that I detailed earlier. My upset came through, but my lock went sideways. The Jags and the Lions are still reliable to pick against, thank goodness. Brady and Mahomes are still pimps and good for wins, and I was glad to see the Vikings take the fight to the Packers for once and come away with a solid win. Anyway, presented once again for your perusal, review, and approval are this week's NFL picks, with odds being provided by ESPN. Fast facts will be at the bottom of the screen, but I provide those odds just for comparison purposes. If you bet the lines and lose, it's on you. Let's lead off with the Thursday game. The Chargers, who are 1-0, take on the 1-0 Chiefs at GEHA Field at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. Try saying that three times fast. The game's Thursday, 8-15, on Amazon Prime Video. The Chiefs are three-and-a-half-point favorites. Last week, the Chargers defeated the Raiders 24-19, while the Chiefs defeated the Cardinals 44-21. Both teams coming off of solid wins. The Chargers wore down the Raiders, while the Chiefs ran roughshod over the cards. These matchups are never boring, with two of the more dynamic offenses in the NFL on display. The Chargers' Justin Herbert is quietly building a rep as a big play, big number QB. That's a status that Patrick Mahomes has in spades. Now, the only problem for Justin Herbert is that he will be missing Keenan Allen, who has a bum hamstring. I think the Chiefs are eager to continue to prove that their offense will do just fine without Tyreek Hill, but the Chargers' defense is markedly better than the Cards defense they played last week. So while I can't see the Chiefs ringing up 44, I do see them getting the win. The pick here is Kansas City. Let's move to the Sunday early games. Sunday, September 18th, it's a CBS doubleheader week. The Dolphins and the Ravens are first on the docket. Both teams are 1-0. Games being played at M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Ravens are four-point favorites. Last, the Dolphins defeated the Patriots 20-7, while the Ravens defeated the Jets 24-9. Both teams rode to solid wins in their opening weekend games. I was really impressed by the play of 2-0 Tua Tagovailoa, easy for you to say, against the Pats. And the Dolphins' defense played better than advertised. The Ravens toyed with the Jets in Gotham. And Lamar Jackson is betting on himself to have a big season. And he had a good game to start that effort. Now the curve gets a bit steeper as the Dolphins' defense will be a lot tougher than the Jets. Save Ahmad Saras Gardner, who's on the Jets, but never mind. That said, I think the Ravens are better on both sides of the ball. The pick is Baltimore. Speaking of the Jets, they are 0-1, taking on the 1-0 Browns at First Energy Stadium in Cleveland. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Browns are 6.5-point favorites. Last week, the Jets lost to the Ravens 24-9, while the Browns defeated the Panthers 26-24. The Browns spoiled the Baker Mayfield revenge game with a late drive, capped by a 58-yard game-winning field goal by Cade York. Is Jacoby Brissett the answer for the Browns long-term? Of course not. But he will keep the Browns in more than a few games. They should have no problem with the weakling Jets who underwhelmed in the rain in the Meadowlands last week. The Jets figured out a way to botch every scoring chance that they had. And even when they scored, they messed up the extra point. The Browns are in the rare position of being a fairly heavy favorite. And a pick that I think is justified. The pick is Cleveland. 
Next up on the docket, we have the 0-0-1 Colts taking on the 0-1-1 Jags at TIAA Bank Field in Jacksonville. It's a 1 o'clock kickoff on CBS. The Colts are four-and-a-half point favorites. Last week, the Colts tied with the Texans at 20, while the Jaguars lost to the Commanders 28-22. to Colts bumbled their way to a road draw with an eminently beatable Texan squad and now face another road divisional game against the Jags, who unsurprisingly play inconsistent in a road loss to the Commanders. The Colts wasted a brilliant effort from Jonathan Taylor, but they should get another opportunity against a so-so Jags defense. I think the Jags could play the Colts tough, but you know Matt Ryan is likely licking his chops to get at their poor secondary, especially after watching them give up four scores to the so-so Carson Wentz. The pick here is Indianapolis. Next on the docket, we have the 1-0 Commanders taking on the 0-1 Lions at Ford Field in Detroit. 1 o'clock kickoff on Fox. The Lions are one-point favorites. Last week, the Commanders defeated the Jags 28-22, while the Lions lost to the Eagles 38-35. Carson Wentz threw for four scores as the Commanders rallied smartly to beat the Jags. The Lions scored a lot of points, but came up short against the Eagles. You know, I've never been real strong on either side, but while the Lions racked up big numbers last week, it was in a futile rally attempt. I can't see the Lions doing that on a consistent basis. But to be honest, I can't see Carson Wentz throwing for four scores either. Flip a coin on that one, the coin comes up Washington. That's the pick. Next on the docket, we have the 1-0 Buccaneers at the 1-0 Saints. The game's being played at the Caesars Superdome in New Orleans. 1 o'clock kickoff on Fox. The Buccaneers are three-point favorites. Last week, the Bucs defeated the Cowboys 19-3, while the Saints defeated the Falcons 27-26. Now, the Bucs won an ugly game in Jerry World, and it came at a price with wide receiver Chris Godwin out with a hamstring pull for this game. Saints spied the Falcons' big lead, then roared back with a shocking fourth quarter rally to pull out the narrow win. Saints will not be able to let the Bucks run out on them like the Falcons did and hope that they could storm back to get another win, even at home. Now, Tom Brady always seems to have trouble in the Big Easy, and while it's tempting to pick the Saints as an upset, I'll pass this time. The pick is Tampa Bay. Next on the docket, we have the 0-1 Panthers against the 1-0 Giants. That game is at MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. 1 o'clock kickoff on Fox. The Giants are one-point favorites. Last week, the Panthers defeated... I beg your pardon. The Panthers lost to the Browns 26-24, while the Giants defeated the Titans 21-20. Now, the Panthers played decent, but left too much time on the clock and let the Browns steal their home opener. Meanwhile, the G-Men pulled a stunning upset in beating the Titans in Nashville with a gutsy go-for-two uh, call... Gamble paying off a rookie coach, Brian Dabal. The Panthers have the tools on both sides. And Baker Mayfield played decent in his first game in Carolina. Having Christian McCaffrey does not hurt that offense one bit. Still, the Giants now have Saquon Barkley. He's still in this league? Yes, Saquon Barkley is still in this league. And he ran with purpose in Nashville, getting the G-Men a, a surprising win. And he can do a lot in helping Daniel Jones control the clock. That said, I think the Giants' win was a fluke. And that the Panthers, while not markedly better than the Giants, 
are good enough to get the, the win here on the road. The pick here is Carolina. Uh, last game on the early side of the docket, we have the 0-1 Patriots taking on the 1-0 Steelers at Accretion Stadium in Pittsburgh. 1 o'clock kickoff on CBS. The Patriots are one-point favorites. Last week, the Patriots lost to the Dolphins 20-7, while the Steelers defeated the Bengals 23-20 in overtime. The Pats looked terrible. Punchless, even, in a listless loss at South Beach, while the Steelers did everything they could to blow the win against the Bengals. But they still managed to get the dub in overtime. Mac Jones is a huge question mark with a back injury. For the Pats, while Mitch Trubisky is not a world beater, if he continues to manage games the way he has been doing in a capable way, they will pull out a few games. Steelers defense is rough and tough and will make life miserable for Mac Jones. Bill Belichick is finding out fast that life with Mac isn't as easy as he thought it was going to be. The pick here is Pittsburgh. Let's take a timeout. We will continue with the late games. Sports from the Hoodwood continues after this. Lead off the late afternoon games with the 1-0 Seahawks at the 0-1 49ers. Games being played at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara, California. 4-0-5 kickoff on Fox. The Niners are 8.5 point favorites. Last week, the Seahawks defeated the Broncos 17-16, while the 49ers defeated the Bears 19-10. The Seahawks played a sloppy game on Monday to be sure and held off the Broncos. Meanwhile, the Niners looked and played sloppy in the rain in Chicago. Trey Lance has a very short lease. And if he plays as uneven as he did in week one, Jimmy G will be stepping in sooner than later. Geno Smith, is he still in this league? Yes, he's still in this league. He played a solid game and bolstered by the redoubtable running of Rashad Penny. The Seahawks played a solid, if unspectacular, game in getting a week one win. I don't trust either team, to be honest. And this is another coin flip game. I'll bet on a bounce back game for the Niners at home. The pick is San Francisco. Next on the docket, we have the 0-1 Falcons at the 0-1 Rams. That game's being played 
in SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California, 405 kickoff on Fox. The Rams are 10 point favorites. Last week, the Falcons lost to the Saints 27 to 26, while the Rams lost to the Bills 31 to 10. The Rams got hammered, hammered by the Bills in the second half and got embarrassed in their home opener. Meanwhile, the Falcons do what they usually do roar out to a big lead and then collapse. The Rams are in a foul mood, and the Falcons are in their sights. This game will not be pretty, unless you're piling up Ram stats for your fantasy team. The pick here is Los Angeles. That's my lock of the week. Next on the docket, we have the 0-0-1 Texans at the 0-1 Broncos. Game being played at Empower Field in, at Mile High in Denver. 425 kickoff on CBS. The Broncos are 10.5 point favorites. Last week, the Texans played the Colts to a 20-all draw. While the Broncos lost to the Seahawks 17-16. Poor clock management haunted both teams in their first game. Texans managed to get to a tie. While the Broncos' puzzling waste of time in their last drive on Monday night led to a bizarre 64-yard field goal attempt that failed. Which handed the Broncos a loss in a very winnable game. The Broncos played very undisciplined and took numerous bad penalties. Russell Wilson played... Eh, okay, I guess, but the Broncos wasted a number of scoring chances inside the opponent's 20. Now, Texas are a hard, hard team to figure out, and I don't trust their offense and their defense is inconsistent at best. I won't bet against the Broncos at mile high. The pick here is Denver. Next up on the docket, we have the 0-1 Bengals at the 0-1 Cowboys. Games being played at AT AT&T Stadium in Arlington. 425 kickoff on CBS. The Bengals are seven-point favorites. Last week, the Bengals lost to the Steelers 23-20 in overtime. The Cowboys lost to the Bucks 19-3. Now, the Pokes looked terrible, terrible in their home opener and suffered a painful loss with the hand injury to Dak Prescott. They now face a Bengals squad reeling after a heartbreaking loss to their despised divisional rival. Cooper Rush has played in Prescott's stead before and has played capably. That said, Joe Burrow is not going to play as poorly as he did in the first half against the Steelers. And the Polk's indifferent defense has not proved that it can slow down a dynamic receiving core. The Bengals need to get a win to stay afloat in what looks to be in a tough division, and they will get it. The pick here is Cincinnati. Next on the docket, we have the 0-1 Cardinals at the 0-1 Raiders. The game's being played at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. 425 kickoff on CBS. The Raiders are 2.5 point favorites. Last week, the Cardinals lost to the Chiefs 44-21, while the Raiders lost to the Chargers 24-19. The Cards got shredded by the Chiefs, and they face another solid offense in the Raiders in, the home, in their home opener. Now, while the Raiders were unable to defeat the Chargers last week, their offense is showing off newly acquired Devontae Adams. I do not trust the Cardinals on either side of the ball. Really don't trust the Raiders that much either. But at home, they're pretty tough to beat. The Carr-Adams connection will do damage and get the win for the Raiders. The pick here is Las Vegas. Sunday night game is the 1-0 Bears at the 0-1 Packers at Historic Lambeau Field in Green Bay. A 20 kickoff on NBC. Packers are 10-point favorites. Last week, the Bears defeated the 49ers 19-10, while the Packers lost to the Vikings 23-7. Now, the team's records, I did not mispronounce, and it's not a misprint on your screen. The Bears rumbled to a win in a monsoon on the midway, 
while the Packers got throttled on the road. Now, the Bears are not that good, but they took advantage of sloppy play by the Niners to get the win. The Packers, on the other hand, have a ton of questions, especially in their receiving core. Their offense was toothless. The defense could not find Justin Jefferson, we with a GPS tracker. That said, the Packers at home, at night, are damn tough to beat. And it'll be an even tougher way to go for the Bears, facing an angry crowd and a frustrated Aaron Rodgers. The pick here is Green Bay. Turning to the Monday night games, we have the 0-1 Titans at the 1-0 Bills. Playing at Highmark Stadium in Orchard Park, New York, 7-15 kickoff on ESPN. The Bills are 10-point favorites. Last week, the Titans lost to the Giants 21-20, while the Bills defeated the Rams 31-10. The Bills walked tall in their season opener, routing the Rams in the second half to pull away. Meanwhile, the Titans looked confused by their offense in a shocking loss to the Giants. The Bills, like I said, are walking tall and brimming with confidence playing at home. While the Titans have their usual strong running game behind Derrick Henry, do you really trust Ryan Tannehill? He doesn't have Julio Jones. He doesn't have A.J. Brown. He doesn't have a passing game. The Bills are just better on both sides of the ball and playing in front of their crazy Bills Mafia crowd at home. At night, the home team will likely shine. The pick here is Buffalo. Finally, we have the 1-0 Vikings playing the 1-0 Eagles at Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia. 8.30 kickoff on ABC. Eagles are one and a half point favorites. Last week, the Vikings defeated the Packers 23-7, while the Eagles defeated the Lions 38-35. The Vikings rolled to a stunningly easy win over their hated rivals at home, while the Eagles roared out to a big lead, then hung on for dear life to get the win in Motown. The Vikings had the usual suspects on offense, Dalvin Cook, Adam Thielen. I'm no Kirk Cousins fan, but he played decently, and it helps when Justin Jefferson had more offense than the Packers at one point. Jalen Hurts is a problem. Believe that. His mobility and accuracy is getting better by the game, and he will give the Vikings defense real problems. I so want to bet on the Vikings. I really, really do, but I want them to show me that they can win on the road before I make them a road pick. Now, I'll be happy to be wrong here, but the upset of the week is Philadelphia, and there you have it. Last week and overall, I'm 9-6-1 with my lock incorrect and my upset correct. So that means I'm 0-1 on my locks, 1-0 on the upsets. We will take a final timeout, come back with the Hoodwood Hot 5 and the Fat Dap heads left and the final word from the wood. Sports from the Hoodwood heads down the stretch after this.
You're tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the Internet's premier destination for no-nonsense commentary, thorough analysis, and logical insights on the world of sports. Now here's the man that Wikipedia and Google call for sports fact checks, your host, KJ Green. Rounding third and headed for home here in the Hoodwood. Let's finish up strong with the Hoodwood Hot Five, Fat Dap Head Slap, and the final word from the wood. The Hoodwood Hot Five, again, is the top five college programs, in my opinion. May not be your opinion, may not be AP's opinion, but it's the top five teams, in my opinion. That's what counts. We go back from five to one. Number five, we have the Clemson Tigers, who defeated Furman 35-12 and look rather bored doing it. But they remain at number five. Number four, the Michigan Wolverines. Big Blue dropped another 50 spot on a hapless opponent. Not necessarily hapless. I shouldn't say Hawaii is hapless. But 50 points again. 56. Wow. And I'm very afraid of what they're going to do to poor UConn. Got to pray for UConn. That they don't get left in bits and pieces all over Michigan Stadium. That game is going to be absolutely ugly. At number three, Alabama. Now, I'm already hearing the screams from the people. Alabama's the, Alabama's the number one team. Well, Alabama's not the number one team anymore. Alabama's not the defending national champions. No, they're not. Georgia is. And they were very, very, very close to a catastrophic loss at Texas. Bama won by a point. And it confirms to me why Saban doesn't want to play any decent teams out of conference. He prefers to play cookies out of, out of conference. Saving the, you know, his real tough you know, possible losses against SEC opponents. Lose to an SEC opponent, you say, well, we're the SEC. You know, we, we've got an excuse. But that loss to Texas, now Texas is going to be in the SEC in a couple of years. And Saban might be gone by then because Texas is coming on strong. They nearly pulled off that win. Somebody please tell me why they're ranked number two in the AP. And they still got first place votes. I don't know. And number two, the Ohio State University. They more or less steamroll Arkansas State. And I was checking their schedule, and I note that the Bucks only leave Columbus four times. And they only leave the Eastern Time Zone once. What's the over-under on their win total this year? Hoodwood is setting it at 11. And a lot of people think it's going to be more than that. But I seriously think they're going to be undefeated by the time they play Michigan in November. Ohio State is good. Believe that. But the number one team in the Hoodwood Hot Five is Georgia. Now they shut out Samford. Not Stanford. Samford. School in Georgia. Shut them out 33 to nothing. That's not newsworthy. But like I told you last week, Georgia, not Alabama, is the top team in the country. Georgia, not Alabama, is the defending national champs. They are the best team in the country. Give me a reason why they aren't. Send me an email. KJGreen at BlackBanditProductions.com If you got a reason why Georgia is not the best team in the country, send me an email. I'll answer it, and I might even reach out to you, and we can debate it right here in the Hoodwood. That's the Hoodwood Hot Five. What do you think? 
Our Fat Dap Head Slap of the Week. We start out with Fat Dap. That goes to Byron Allen, the one-time comedian, now media mogul, that heads the Allen Media Group. They inked a large contract that will give needed exposure to HBCU sports. Not just football, but all sports across all of their entities. The HBCU Gold Digital streaming platform is not only free, but also on other AMG stations, including Grio, and a host of local stations that they've inked deals with across the country. Now, this package will feature uh, SWAC and CIA teams, and they started the football scheduled last Saturday, and they will be shown every Saturday through the HBCU Go uh, networks uh, every Saturday through mid-November. This package not only gives needed cash infusion to HBCUs, but critical national exposure. Fat dap to Byron Allen and the Allen Media Group for reaching out and, and giving that kind of exposure and financial uh, stability to HBCUs through this uh, media venture that is very inventive. Our head slap of the week... <laughs> Goes to Brigham Young University, old BYU. Now, I've never been a fan of the Mormon-based school, and they've dropped even lower in my regards. After reports of racial heckling of a Duke volleyball player late last month, I thought BYU had done the right thing by banning this said heckler from all BYU events. But then they rescinded that ban and claimed after an investigation they had found that not there had been no uh, credible evidence of this said heckling. They then tried to turn the animus back at the Duke players saying that she made up the whole thing. And they furthermore openly criticized South Carolina women's basketball coach Dawn Staley who decided to cancel a home-and-home -home, uh, basketball series with the Cougars in light of these events, citing concern for her players' safety. Now BYU tried to play the victim. And there were a number of talking heads, including the notoriously idiotic Dan Dockage, who I cannot stand, that were openly critical of Stanley's actions. Now, BYU isn't real friendly to people of color, and I don't care what anybody says about the Mormon church and everything. I'm not going to get into a religious debate about the Mormon church one way or the other. I would just note that they'd have never, they didn't have a black pastor in their church until 1977. I'll leave that stand there. I'm not a real fan of them to begin with, so my head slap is to BYU for its sorry stand and its weak defense of the indefensible. And now, without further ado, here's the final word from the wood. Albert Pujols has been playing Major League Baseball for more than 22 years. Now, I remember when he first broke on the scene in 2001 with the cards. I thought he was the best young player in Major League Baseball since Derek Jeter, had, who had broke on the scene five years previous. Watching Pujols swing the bat was like watching an artist paint or a musician bang out a melody. The comparisons were hard to make as in who his contemporary would be. He was this player who was a hitting machine, fielded good, he could hit for average, hit for power, brother could he hit for power, and he was the def definition of consistency. His first 10 seasons in St. Louis were almost boring in its consistency. He averaged 44 home runs and 133 RBIs a season. Averaged. His career high of 49 home runs in 2007, he played a career low 143 games. And I could bore you to death with his machine-like consistent status. 
and one of Pujols' nicknames was The Machine. He was also called El Hombre, a Spanish variation of the man. Now, those who are baseball historians or more or less Cardinals fans know that the man is a sacred nickname bestowed on Stan the Man Musial. Pujols wanted to just take that nickname and just make it a Spanish nickname, El Hombre. And the Cardinal fans embraced him with that. Now, after winning two World Series with Cards in 2006 and 2011, he was one of baseball's most prized free agents. He turned down a $210 million offer to re-sign with the St. Louis Cardinals, instead signing a then-record $254 million contract with the Los Angeles Angels. Pujols was less than spectacular in his time in L.A., while he had 40 or more home runs in six different seasons in St. Louis, he did that in L.A. just once. He had 445 home runs in 10 seasons in St. Louis, but almost exactly half that in Anaheim. He hit below 300 one time in St. Louis, once, and that was a 299 season. That was the same year he knocked in just 99 RBIs, the only season in his first 10 in St. Louis that he hit less than 100 or more RBIs. He had 100 or more RBIs in only four of his 10 seasons in Anaheim. Safe to say he fell off in his years on the West Coast. That was reasoning a nadir when he batted a paltry 198 in his last 24 games in Anaheim. Pujols was straight across town to the Dodgers in 2021, where he, even though he had 12 home runs, he was a shell of himself. Then he just signed a one-year contract with the Cardinals, which was supposed to be a farewell tour. Funny thing happened the way on, retirement, on the way to retirement, though. Pujols had 679 home runs to start the season. Many people didn't think he could hit the 21 home runs at 42, and for the early part of the season, Pujols muddled along. But then August came along, and the magic came back. Albert was El Hombre again. I took it a game last month and watched as he pounded number 693 into the seats at Great American Ballpark. It's a venue that he is always hit well in. And add to boot, it was his 450th different pitcher that he has taken deep. That's an MLB record. Now, the sparse crowd on that rainy night cheered loudly for him. Yes, there were a good number of Cardinal fans who had made the trip. But on that night, even the Reds fans stood and cheered. I did too. You give dap to greatness. And if you're a true sports fan, game recognizes game. Pujols knows now saying... Pujols now stands at 697 home runs, passing A-Rod, I mean A-Rod, on fourth in the all-time list. Bonds, Aaron, and Ruth await in the 700 home run fraternity. And while the top, top three spots will likely remain safe, 700 is the one number that we can all cheer on Albert to knock down. Pujols will get the call to Cooperstown in 2028 as a no-doubt first ballot Hall of Famer. And by and large, many have been effusive with praise of Pujols, saying that he played the game the right way. An example, his 697th home run was caught by a pair of fans in Pittsburgh. They were willing to give the ball back for just a picture and a chance to meet Pujols. Pujols not only graciously met with the two, El Hombre told the couple to keep the souvenir, saying it would mean more to them. And he gave them two additional autographed balls. He did so also after learning after one of the, these fans had lost her dad a year previous to the date of, of catching this home run. It's gestures like that 
that have been numerous and frequent throughout his stellar career. And this one has made him one of the more beloved figures in not only baseball, not only just not just in St. Louis, but in baseball altogether. So as Pujols takes his final swings, the Hoodwood salutes him and hopes that he can crack the 700 home run plateau as a final coda to a brilliant career. And that is the final word from the Wood. With the music coming up in the background, you know that means your time in the Hoodwood is just about over. But I thank you so much for your visit this week. If you want to send an email to the show, correspondence, questions, comments, criticism, I welcome them all. Send me an email at kjgreen at blackbanditproductions.com. show airs weekly on many of these same podcasting networks. You can find me on Spotify, YouTube, iTunes. Always smash that subscribe and like button. You can uh, get further updates on the show. You can also visit me on Facebook on my Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises. I post a show there as well. I also have two Twitter handles. Trump does. At KJGreen20. And I also have one at Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises. Send me tweets there and I will tweet back. Thank you so much for watching. Special thanks to Rage Pictures. Productions Enterprises and all my staff and writers and everything like that to help out the show and go make the show go so smoothly. Until next time out in the Hoodwood, it's been fellow sports fans, I'm KJ Green. Dirty.